Right Size Birthday Biography Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive lasting impact. Today, January 3rd, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of the first Chinese-American movie star. So I feel like when we talk about racism in Hollywood, particularly in the days of old Hollywood, we tend to sort of narrow our lens to how racism in Hollywood impacted Black actors. We, myself included, we seem to forget that there was just as much awful stereotyping and abuse that Asian actors were subjected to back in those days. Lower pay, stereotypical roles, even losing out on parts designed for Asians to white actors in yellow face. Today's human in history was a trailblazer, but this did not accord her any special treatment. Hollywood treated her horribly for the most part and contributed pretty much directly to her early death, brought on in part by depression and alcoholism. Anna Mae Wong was the first Asian-American female superstar in Hollywood, and that's putting it mildly. She was a bombshell, breathtakingly beautiful, and an incredible actor to boot. Born Wong Lu Song to a large Chinese family in L.A. in 1905, she was the second of either seven or eight kids, depending on what source you look at, and her father, Wong Sam Sing, owned a laundry. When anime was five, the family moved to a home in the Wilmington neighborhood of L.A. They were the only Chinese family in the neighborhood of mostly Mexican and Eastern European immigrants, and the kids were teased ruthlessly. And it got so bad that the parents pulled Anna and her siblings out of the local public school and put them into a Presbyterian Chinese school. While this was going on, the blossoming movie industry was setting up its roots in L.A., Anna was starting to ditch school and spending her lunch money to get into the movies. Her parents were really pissed, but Anna just knew that this was her calling. And by the age of nine, she was hanging around movie lots so much that the filmmakers that she always pestered for roles started calling her CCC, Curious Chinese Child. At the age of 11, she changed her name to Anna Mae Wong. No one seemed to need a precocious Chinese girl, though, so Anna took an after-school job in a department store when she was 14. This was a short-lived position as she got wind that Metro Pictures, which was not yet part of MGM, needed 300 female extras for the 1919 movie The Red Lantern, and a friend got Anna the tiny, uncredited part of a lantern carrier. For the next two years, she took on various bit parts until a bizarre illness threatened to put a stop to her career. As an actor, you have to be able to control at least two things, your body and your voice. And this was in jeopardy when she came down with a mysterious illness called St. Vitus Dance Disease. This weird illness deserves a sidebar. So between the 14th and 17th centuries, Europe saw bouts of a bizarre social phenomenon called dancing mania. The first episode was in the 7th century, but episodes occurred up until the 1600s when it suddenly stopped. So what was it exactly? Basically, it was groups of thousands of men and women and children who gathered and began to dance in this frenzied, uncontrolled, and dangerous manner in like a giant writhing mob. They danced without stop until they either dropped dead of exhaustion, broke so many bones they couldn't go on, or were dragged away by family members. There are many accounts of this and just as many theories as to what was behind it. Considered to be the curse of St. Vitus, it was named after him until a more contemporary medical experts gave it the technical name of Sydenham's chorea. Considered a form of mass psychogenic illness. Mass psychogenic illness is a disease with physical symptoms that don't have any known cause that is shared by a group of people due to social influence. So 
It was considered this mass illness, and there seemed to be underlying factors of personal stress, trauma from natural disasters, and widespread famine. The dancers usually chose places they didn't live, and they often ended up having sex or jumping into lakes or hopping around pretending to be animals. Yeah, really, really weird stuff. Even weirder is that everyone who was afflicted had a violent reaction to the color red. So times being what they were, no one really understood what was behind St. Vita's dance, and everything from the gods to the devil to scorpion bites were blamed. Thankfully, though, by the time Anna came down with St. Vita's dance in the late 1910s, it was understood to be a neurological issue associated with exposure to strep, which is obviously highly contagious. But it oddly usually pops up months after the infection is gone, and it happens usually to girls under 16. So Anna missed school for months. She was confined at home with uncontrollable jerking and shaking of her hands, feet, and face, and she became depressed to the point of despondency. She was kind of on the verge of a nervous breakdown when her father took her to a Chinese medicine specialist, and her symptoms began to subside and eventually went away completely. Overwhelmed by backlog schoolwork and still determined to make it in Hollywood, Anna had to choose one or the other, and the big screen won out. So she left high school and by 1921 had snagged her first on-screen credit as the wife of the very white Lon Chaney's character, Toy Ling, in Bits of Life. Lon Chaney appeared in Yellowface, but the two never shared any physical affection on screen. And in fact, this would be the stumbling block of Anne's entire career. She could never share a kiss with any of her male co-stars due to America's anti-miscegenation laws, which made it illegal for members of different races to engage in any sort of romantic relationship on screen or off. And because a gorgeous leading lady who didn't play romantic roles was unheard of, she would be relegated to a career of butterflies, innocent yet exotic young virgins, or dragon ladies, evil conniving temptresses who never got the guy. There was only one other leading Asian man in Hollywood at this time, the broodingly sexy Sisu Hayakawa, but they would never be a romantic on-screen duo. The laws that prevented her from getting the guy on screen didn't stop her in real life, though, and at the age of 19, she engaged in a scandalous relationship with director Todd Browning, who she had met when she played a concubine in his 1923 film, Drifting. This relationship was all the buzz around Hollywood. Not only was the very white and older Todd illegally dating a Chinese bit actor, she was also underage. At 19, she was two years short of the then legal age of consent of 21. But her name was also starting to get around Hollywood for other reasons. She had her first sizable role on the Technicolor film The Toll of the Sea, and she was called out in the papers for her exceptional acting. Everyone that she worked with knew she could act, and now audiences did too, but studios still could do nothing with her. She was Chinese. End of sentence. In 1924, she appeared in the Douglas Fairbanks movie The Thief of Baghdad, playing, what else, a scheming Mongol slave. The picture was a big hit, as Fairbanks' name was box office gold, and after this picture, everyone knew Anime Wong, partly due to the super skimpy slave outfit that she wore. So she was able to get her own apartment, and she dove headfirst into the flapper scene, establishing a reputation as one of the best-dressed women in Hollywood, an accolade that would hover around her for the remainder of her life. That same year, she decided to take control of her career and the flimsy roles that she was being offered, and she started Anime Wong Productions, which was going to focus on creating film versions of Chinese myths. Unfortunately, her business partner turned out to be a crook, and she had to shut down the company before they could even create one film. 
So it was back to being shoved into vamp role after vamp role, and not just Asian roles. She was cast as an Eskimo, as a Native American. Apparently back then it was white people in one group and everyone else in the other. So by the time the 1920s came to an end, she was super burned out and disillusioned. She had pretty much played the same role in every movie her entire career, and none of them had been starring. So she moved to Europe for two years, and in that time, she became the darling of European cinema, appearing in German films and operettas. She finally got to play a title role, though, in the German operetta Chun Chi, singing the whole thing in German. During her time in Germany, she met and became bosom buddies with Leni Reifenstahl. Leni was a German actress and director best remembered today for creating and starring in Nazi propaganda films. Leni and Anna were so close during this time that rumors of a lesbian relationship began to swirl but it would not be the last time that Anna would be romantically linked to a female co-star. Anna next moved to England, where she again was the darling of stage and screen, stealing the picture from the other women in her movies. She almost got her first interracial on-screen kiss in the 1929 Piccadilly, but it was cut at the last moment. During this time, she was linked with the writer Eric Mashwitz, who allegedly wrote, These Foolish Things Remind Me of You, about her after the two of them broke up. Because we always want what we can't have, American studios started to take an interest in Anna more when she was abroad, and Paramount promised her top billing in major roles, and they managed to lure her back to the U.S. in 1930. So she started out first in a play called On the Spot, which ran for 167 performances on Broadway. The director asked her to use Japanese mannerisms for the Chinese character, and Anna refused. At this point, Anna was doing well enough financially to support her whole family, including tuition for her siblings. Tragically, a few months after she returned to Hollywood, her mother was run over by a car and killed. In 1931, Anna rather reluctantly accepted yet another stereotypical role as a dragon lady in Daughter of the Dragon. Lured by the chance to act in a Joseph von Sternberg picture, she accepted the title character role as the daughter of Fu Manchu, Fu Manchu, a stereotypical evil Asian, was played by the Swedish actor Warner Oland in Yellow Face, complete with grease paint in his hair and his eyes taped back. Even though Anna was in the title role, she was the lowest paid of the three main actors, receiving only six grand for the film, while Walter, who was only in 23 minutes of the film, was paid double. At this point, Anna decided enough is enough. So she began to speak out not only about the issues going on in China, but also the discrimination that Chinese actors faced in Hollywood. First, she wrote a searing op-ed criticizing the Mukden incident and the subsequent invasion of Manchuria by Japan. The Mukden incident was a clever ruse by the Japanese army to justify an invasion of Manchuria by detonating a tiny amount of dynamite, not enough to cause any damage, next to a Japanese railway and then blaming the Chinese. In an interview with Film Weekly, she said, Why is it that the screen Chinese are always the villains, and so crude as villains, murderous, treacherous, a snake in the grass? We're not like that. How could we be with a civilization that is so many times older than the West? It was during this time that she was cast in what is arguably her most well-known role, as Hui Fei, the traveling companion of Marlena Dietrich's character Shanghai Lily in Joseph von Sternberg's Shanghai Express. Hui Fei, a reformed courtesan, is assaulted and eventually murders her assailant in the film, leaving her with nothing but a looming jail sentence as her future. Yet, even though Diedrich had the starring role, Anna effortlessly steals the picture from her. There was evidently no hard feelings, though, as the two allegedly had a torrid onset affair. The sexual energy between the two of them was palpable on screen, and it led to the Chinese press having a heyday with headlines like, 
Paramount utilizes Anna Mae Wong to produce picture to disgrace China, accusing her sexually empowered portrayals of being detrimental to Chinese women. If Anna felt that the success of Shanghai Express was an omen of things to come, she was very much mistaken. MGM was producing The Son-Daughter, an awful drama about a love affair between members of rival Chinese communities. MGM said that Anna was, quote, too Chinese to play a Chinese, whatever that means. So the leading female role of Lian Hua went to the very un-Chinese Helen Hayes, and the leading man role of Tom Lee went to Mexican actor Raymond Navarro. All the other principal characters were played by white actors. It was a yellow-faced debacle, and it got horrible reviews. Pissed, yet again, Anna set off for England, where she stayed for three years, performing on stage and screen in a variety of mostly forgettable roles. The one notable moment, if not film, was the 1934 Java Head, in which Anna had her first and only on-screen kiss with her white husband. While Hollywood wasn't thinking of anime, they were thinking of China. China was cracking under the yoke of Japanese imperialism, drawing much sympathy from the international community. Tapping into the sentiment, MGM bought the rights to Pearless Buck's The Good Earth. Anna had had her heart set on playing the lead role of the selfless heroine Olan ever since the book came out in 1931. So in 1935, when MGM announced it would start looking at casting, Anna sailed back to Hollywood, feeling that at last she would get to play a part of a Chinese heroine. The press was totally behind her. There were articles and columns gushing about what a perfect role it would be for her. Yet MGM refused to consider her for the part of Olan because they had their hearts set on the leading man, Wang, being played by Austro-Hungarian actor Paul Muni, so he had to have a non-Asian wife, even though they were playing Chinese peasants. The dream role of Anna's life went to German actress Louise Rainier, who ended up winning an Academy Award. The studio insultingly offered Anna the same role that she had played her whole life, that of the deceitful courtesan Lotus, who brings down Olan and Wang's family. When Irving Thalberg, head of production, offered Anna this role, she told him, If you let me play Olan, I will be very glad. But you're asking me, with Chinese blood, to do the only unsympathetic role in the picture featuring an all-American cast portraying Chinese characters. So she basically turned him down flat, and today this is considered one of the most glaring examples of casting discrimination in the history of Hollywood. So, sick of Hollywood, she took off to China for a year, in part to visit the village that her ancestors had come from. But it was kind of a disastrous experience. She'd been raised speaking the Taishan dialect, and she had a hard time speaking with the majority of Mandarin-speaking citizens that she met. So she gave an interview on her way to Shanghai, and she was asked if she'd planned to marry at some point, and she said, no, I am married to my art. But the next day, the newspapers announced that Anna Mae Wong was married to a Cantonese man named Art. The stress of the last decade was starting to take a toll on her, and she had a hard time covering it up. She was drinking way too much, she was chain-smoking and fluctuating between intense bouts of depression and periods of violent anger. When she disembarked in Hong Kong, she was snippy with the crowd that had gathered to see her arrive, and they began to boo and curse her, and she collapsed into tears, leading the crowd to stampede towards her. She returned to the U.S. in the late 30s to complete the few pictures that she still owed on her contract to Paramount, and she was put into a bunch of B-movies. Critics didn't think much of them, but these were the few films where she was actually given more interesting or sympathetic roles. In Daughter of Shanghai, her leading role was rewritten to make her a heroine, which she very desperately wanted to play, and in The King of Chinatown, she plays a self-sacrificing surgeon who helps fight off a Japanese invasion. 
Insultingly, though, at this time, Paramount was also using Anna as a tutor for white actresses who were given parts that should have gone to her, forcing Anna to teach them how to act more Asian. She worked a lot with American actress Dorothy L'Amour, whose dark, sultry good looks and trademark sarong often led her to being cast in various Asian or Polynesian roles. She also had to teach the white Myrna Loy how to use chopsticks for her role as an Asian woman in The Crimson City. She made a few more anti-Japanese propaganda movies during World War II, the salaries of which she donated to the China Relief Fund, along with the proceeds from the sales of her entire costume collection. After the war, Anna wisely decided to invest in real estate, buying and flipping houses and apartment buildings all around Hollywood. She did various TV, stage, radio, and voiceover work throughout the 1950s, including one of the first U.S.-made documentaries on China actually narrated by a Chinese person. In 1951, she became the first Asian American to star in the TV show when the gallery of Madame Lu Song aired for one season. In it, she played an art gallery owner who solved crimes. This sounds like an amazing show, but unfortunately, every episode is lost. In 1960, she was finally awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, being placed in what was apparently the ethnic spot alongside African-American Dorothy Dandridge and Hispanic Dolores Del Rio on the southeast corner of Hollywood Avenue and La Brea. She would make her final film appearance that year in a small, stereotypical role of Tawny in the Lana Turner thriller Portrait in Black. Anna was offered the role of Madame Liang in Rodgers and Hammerstein's musical Flower Drum Song, but her deteriorating health forced her to turn down the part. On February 3rd, 1961, she died in her sleep of a heart attack, brought on by depression, stress, and hard drinking. Her cremated remains were placed alongside her mother in Rosedale Cemetery in Los Angeles. My sources today were Wikipedia, Harper's Bazaar, and Oprah Magazine. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Anime Wong. Please join me on January 13th when we celebrate the birth and life of Charlotte Ray, the first black female attorney in the history of the United States. See you then.